would ever live in or no one would worship in. Well, then a few years into uh, people trying to decide what they wanted to do with the building, whether to tear it down or to do something with it, there was a group of men in Kansas City that decided to start a brand new church. And so they were trying to figure out a location of where to have this church. And so they were looking at all these different places and business centers. And they decided instead of us purchasing something new or building something new, what we're going to do is we're going to take this structure that has not been used for 90 years. We're going to flip it and make it useful again. And we're going to make this 90-year-old vacant building our church building. And so that's exactly what they did. And so since they bought this building with the overall job of, of making it new again, the people in Kansas City, Missouri, they heard about this, especially one newspaper, the Kansas City Star. And, and because this building had become somewhat iconic to the Kansas City people, that they went to that church building and they took a picture of it and they put on the front cover of the Kansas City Star a picture of that church building. And the headline on the very front of that newspaper read this, a job with a higher calling. Now, the reason why I mention that, that is a public newspaper that covers all sorts of different topics. But yet, even though they cover it, a lot of different topics, make stances on a lot of different things, isn't it interesting that a public newspaper, when they think of the church, they think of a higher calling. They think of a higher standard. You may not realize it, but I hope that you do that the people that are around us, they do view us with a higher standard. But it's not just the people around us that view us with a higher standard, it's God. He, he views us to live a higher life and he has a higher calling for every single one of us. And the reason why he does is because he has something so much better in store for every one of us, but he also has something better in store for the people that are around us. If you're like me growing up, one of the complaints that you probably heard the most about Christians is that Christians are what? Hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? And I think we've all heard that statement. And when I think about that, I think about when I was down in South Alabama, there was a Mexican restaurant that we loved to eat at. In fact, if you know us, 90% of the time we went out to eat anywhere, it was Mexican food. And so this one place that we went to, we went there every single Sunday, that if you brought your church bulletin, what did you get? That's right, a 10% discount. And so we took our bulletin to this place and we got our 10% discount every single Sunday. Well, at the end of the meal, uh, we were getting ready to leave, but so was a table right beside us. And the table that was right beside us that was getting ready to leave, the lady is about to get the check from the waiter and he hands it to her and then she puts out her church bulletin. And when she hands the church bulletin to the waiter, he then informs her, but he's also informing me at the table nearby, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we, we no longer do the 10% discount. And in my head, I was like, oh man, that's a bummer. But then I saw her reaction and, and instead of her saying, well, sir, I just appreciate you guys doing this for years. This has been a blessing to my family. This has been an encouragement to us. This has helped us. Uh, thank you all for what y'all have done for us through the years, giving us this discount. She proceeds to chew this guy out. And she's holding out her church bulletin. And he's like, ma'am, I'm sorry. We're not doing this anymore. And is trying to shove it at him to make him take it. 
And I was like, wow, the irony of, of this whole thing here. And, and full transparency, if you were in that same situation and she's holding out that church bulletin, what are you looking for on that bulletin? Yeah, that's right, what church she went to, right? That's exactly what I did. And in my mind, I, we, I was at Robert still at that time. I, I was like, I, I know every member, but just in case, I'm going to read just to make sure. It doesn't say Robert Still Church of Christ. And, and, and even though I jokingly did that, the reality is it doesn't matter whether or not it said Robert Still Church of Christ on it or not, because guess whose name was still all over it? Christ's. And, and the way that she acted and the way that she responded was giving this man a picture of Jesus Christ. God has called every single one of us to a higher standard, whether we realize it or not. But my hope is that as we dig into the book of James to look at how to make our faith work when things don't go our way, that we will step into that higher calling because he has something better in store for you and for everybody else. I kind of think of it like this that y'all might remember this. My dad was talking to him about it. He said this really started in like the 70s or 80s. But like your cassette decks your radios, they started doing something called high def. And, and it was this dynamic realism is what they called it to make you feel like anytime you listen to that stereo system that you were in the room in the recording, like it, it made you feel like it was very lifelike. Well, whenever we live out our lives, I think about something Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He, he talks about that because we have died to ourselves, but also now we're alive to Christ, it's no longer me that's calling the shots. It's no longer me that's in the central operating center. It's God. And, and so because of that, I'm to play the exact same song that Jesus Christ is playing. But one thing that you all know is you might have the best song in the world on your CD, on uh, your uh, MP3 cassette, whatever it is that you have, but it doesn't matter how great that song is if the song is not played well. That you can have the best song in the world, but if it's played on busted out speakers, it doesn't sound as good. We have the greatest message in the entire world, and what Paul is letting them know is exactly what James is letting them know, is that we have the greatest message, but it's important that we play it well, because we need it, but the people around us need it too. And so what I want to do is, is get you to turn with me to James chapter 1. And before we get to the look of what faith in the middle of trials, faith in the middle of disappointment looks like, to make sense of what Paul's about to say, excuse me, James is about to say, we do have to get a little bit of context. And so here's the context. Right before we talk about faith in the middle of a, a difficult circumstance, it says James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. Well, which James is this? Well, there are a lot of different Jameses uh, in the Bible. Uh, you've got two of them that are apostles of Jesus. One of those is a dad of one of the apostles. And then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. Most scholars believe that the one that wrote this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the reason why that's pretty amazing is that if you think back to James, the half-brother of Jesus's life, and remember back to the very beginning of his life, for most of his life, what was unique about him? He did not believe in Jesus. In, in fact, if you look in John chapter 7, he thought Jesus was nuts 
And he mocked him and said, hey, you're going to get yourself killed if you keep doing the things that you're going to do and acting the way that you're going to act. Then you're like, well, what happened to get this guy now to be included in the canon and now writing a book? I'll tell you what happened to James. The exact same thing that happened to every single one of us, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and 1 Corinthians mentions that the moment that Jesus rose from the dead, he starts seeing people, he's high-fiving folks. James notices, he's like, oh my, I predicted the death part, but I could not have predicted this. He's alive, and so now James believes. But what's interesting about James is, is in his own faith journey, and we're going to dig in this today, he knows something that it's not just about what we believe. It's that if, if we really believe something, it's going to impact the way that you and I behave. And, and so James makes this amazing shift that can only point back to real faith, genuine faith. And, and just to kind of give you a little bit of a picture of this without going into too much detail, in AD 62, Josephus wrote about how James had the knees of a camel because he prayed so much and hit his knees so much in prayer that he developed calluses. But then they said that they took him to the top of the temple and threw him off. And the fall did not kill him. People start beating James. And while James is getting beat, he's doing what his brother Jesus did, and he's praying for the people that beat him. He becomes a pillar and a leader in the church. I mean, what an amazing growth he makes. And so when, when I think about this, all right, he's the half-brother of Jesus, but what do you not notice in his description of himself? What does he not mention? That he's the half-brother of Jesus. But do y'all remember in the first night, one of the things that we talked about is that our need at times to give ourselves maybe a title, give ourselves significance, Oftentimes that's rooted in insecurity. Do y'all know anybody that's a name dropper? And don't point to them if they're in the room, but like, do y'all know pe that people like that, that you can be in a conversation and they just, in the middle of the conversation, out of nowhere, be like, well, I know so-and-so, or we went here. And you're like, wait, what did that have to do with anything? Why do people drop a name? A lot of times when you drop a name, it's pointing to an issue that you don't feel like you're enough. So I think personally part of it is that James didn't feel a need to say, hey, I, I'm, I'm the half-brother of Jesus because his greatest identity is not being the half-brother of Jesus. His greatest identity is that Jesus Christ was his Lord and that he was his servant. Because just as we talked about in night one, if, if Jesus really is our Lord, then everything else is going to take care of itself. And so he goes on to say, There we go. And to the 12 tribes and the dispersion greetings. This is kind of an interesting description to talk about 12 tribes because 12, back in the Old Testament, people lived in tribal allotments. Y'all might remember that the 12 different tribes. Well, now they're not living in that anymore. So what is he talking about? Well, this was still a way to describe God's people. Matthew did this a lot. It was basically his way of saying, you know, God's people, the, the 12 tribes... And it says this about them, that they've been dispersed. This is why context matters for the faith that he's going to talk about in the middle of the trials. The dispersion happened because God's people start experiencing persecution. 
You go to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. This is when Saul was going around and he was killing Christians. And the reason why they're having to disperse is because their brothers, their sons, their daughters, their moms, their dads, or even themselves are getting persecuted, so they disperse. So that's the group of people he's writing to, a guy that had an amazing faith journey going from not believing to believing, having no faith to being incredibly faithful to a group of people that are wanting to call it quits. And what I love about James is this. He doesn't say, man, I'm just so sorry that you're going through what you're going through. And he does, as we're going to see in a second, mourn with them. Uh, He does try to understand what they're going through and feeling, but he says, you know what? Even though you're going through something hard, that you're still called to a higher standard. And so that's why he so much throughout this book focuses on what we choose to do with our faith. Because I've touched on it earlier, and it's this, that what you and I believe, it should impact the way that we behave. In fact, one of the things that you probably remember is that when you go through the book of James, one of the major talked about things is faith in what? Works. But I think sometimes we wrongly, and I've preached on it wrong too, we'll do the faith plus works. That's not really the way it works. That If you have genuine faith, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have works. If there is real faith on the inside, then there's going to be genuine results and real results that happen on the outside. If there is a real faith, that's going to happen. So if there is a genuine faith, what does that also tell us there is? There can be a false faith. What does a false faith look like? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you as I was getting this message ready, it's one of those things that's very difficult to define because you're trying to describe something maybe in someone else or even in yourself that you've seen. And and these aren't perfect ways to describe false faith, but just to kind of get the ball rolling a little bit, one of those could be what we call sometimes an inherited faith. And what I mean by that is not that the faith that you've inherited per se is the wrong faith. The faith you might have inherited from your, your parents or that you've carried on, maybe is a better way to put it, from your grandparents. It's true, it's right, but there's something different than getting something from your parents or your grandparents and making it your own. And what I mean by that is this, that that you can know the teachings of Jesus Christ, but there's a big difference in knowing the teachings and know the teacher. And and I'll explain to you what what I mean by that. When I was uh, in Montgomery, I was the campus minister at Faulkner, and that was the age group of about 18 to 25. And if you've read any of David Kinneman's books, he's really connected with uh, George Barna that does Barna Research. Uh, the, the one group of, of people that we hear often the most that are falling away from the church are the what? Well, the 18 to 25-year-olds. And so I, I was in that ministry for six years, and being in that ministry, I, I started to notice something that was not what I was expecting And this is not a scientific study on my part. But what was interesting is a lot of the students that ended up no longer having a relationship with God, falling away from the church, what was really interesting is the ones that did, if you asked them their freshman year, hey, can you tell me this Bible passage on blank? They could point to it. That if you asked them, hey, could you give me a few Bible facts on this? Oh, they knew it. But again, there's a big difference in knowing the teachings of Jesus and knowing the teacher. That they knew facts, but the faith wasn't there. And as we're going to talk about in our message on, on baptism, 
that you can know the passages, but that doesn't mean you are taking God up on the power that he provides us, that there's a difference between the two of them. And and the second one is this. Maybe it's a shallow faith. Kind of like in the parable of the sower, that the seed that's thrown out is thrown out, and that the plant, it does start to grow, but it never really developed roots. And so when the things around it started to grow, it choked that plant out because it didn't have anything that was deep. It wasn't beneath the surface. And the danger of this kind of faith is connecting to the next one is that when difficulties come, because guess what? James is about to talk about it. They're coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so when those difficulties come, if you haven't established roots, you're going to fall. That's why Psalm 92, 13 says those that are planted in the house of the Lord, those are going to be the ones that flourish. It's got to be something beneath the surface. But the third one is this. It's that conditional or that circumstantial faith. What I mean by that is it's that kind of faith that's like the moment that something goes really good and everything is going right in your life, you're like, praise God, God is good, God is good all the time. But then when something difficult happens, like, where's God? Where's he, where's he gone? Is he gone AWOL? I don't see him in the middle of this situation. That's that conditional, that circumstantial faith that instead of trying to see our circumstances through God, we try to see God through the circumstances, and that doesn't work. And and that's the thing I know about circumstances, and what I know about conditional faith is that a conditional faith or a circumstantial faith is going to do one of two things. It's either going to solidify the faith that you have, or it's going to break it. It's going to grow it, or it's going to hurt it. It's going to do one of those two things. And here's why circumstantial faith or conditional faith is incredibly fragile. Three reasons. One of those is one thing I don't have to tell you. We all know it. Life is very inconsistent, isn't it? Like the moment that you think you've got everything kind of figured out and and things are going well, then it's the moment that life becomes unraveled and you're in a place that you never thought you would be. But the other reason why it's fragile is I didn't know how to describe this, so this is the best way I could do it, is that we are bad at interpreting events. And and what I mean by that is that sometimes we'll be in the middle of something and we'll say, this is the best thing. This is exactly what I needed. And then over time you realize what? This was not what I needed. And then we'll say, why am I going through this? This is the worst thing ever. Why am I in this job? I didn't want to be in this job. And it turns out later what? That was actually the very job that you needed, that God was using you in the middle of something. We're not the best at interpreting events. The other reason why this is dangerous is that our time frame is, is really short. That especially around a new year, we'll have resolutions, goals for ourselves, and we're like, all right, starting Monday, I'm gonna pray more. I'm gonna make it my, my, my resolution. I'm gonna have a, a, a prayer life. And so on Monday, it gets there and we start praying and we pray on Tuesday, and then we get to Wednesday and things haven't drastically changed and we quit. And and so because of this, this is the danger of this circumstantial faith, this conditional faith. Again, I don't know what it is for you and and where you've struggled in your faith journey, but there is a difference between the two. And one of these produces something and the other one produces nothing. So what James does here, he's trying to define faith in the middle of trials, faith in the middle of a time when things don't go well. And that's what I told you guys in the very first night, that when we talk about each and every one of these topics, I want to deal with the heart behind why it is that we struggle with these. 
And so I know for me, the one thing that really attacks my faith more than anything is it, the inconsistencies of life, the trials of life, the times that, that I get tested. James speaks to that. When I read this section that we're about to get into, I think of this book that we have in our, uh, at our house. Does anybody have this book or have y'all read it before? Yeah, we're going on a bear hunt. My, my kids love this, especially one of them. We read it so much that it's worn slap out, but it's, it's this family that's going on a bear hunt, per se. And they, they go through tall grass. They're going through deep for, forest, uh, through mud. And as they're going through these difficult things, that it gets to a point in the book where it says this, oh no, all right? That they come to this point, and, and as they're going on this bear hunt, they're like, well, w- there's this really difficult part that we've got to go through. And they make this statement, oh no, we can't go over it. We can't go under it, but we have to go what? Through it. And, and that's what James is getting at here is certain things happen in life, trials that you can't avoid, but you didn't ask for them. But we're going to look at the posture of the heart when it goes into those trials and the faith behind it to help us understand that we have what it takes to go through it. And and speaking of that, I think one of the things he's also trying to make sure that we understand is that no matter how difficult things are or or how uncertain life is, that even though we go through bad events, never ever doubt the fact that God is present with you, but also that he is good. So let's look at this text together. Verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brother. If you meet trials of various kinds, right? What does it say? When. It doesn't say if you go through trials. It says when you go through trials. I know for me that the tests that I could not stand growing up were pop quizzes. Did any of y'all are like me that couldn't stand those? We had a French teacher that he just found so much joy um, and, and I didn't even want to be in that class in the first place. I was like, I get Spanish, but where, where am I really going to, you know, but he, you know, give the pop quiz and he was like, I was like, wee wee, that's the only one I know. But like, I don't, but yet he felt the need to continue to do that. The tests that we like and the tests that I like are the ones that I know what, that are coming. That's why I also know that most of the, the lower back injuries that most middle-aged men like myself get are the ones for where your kids randomly jump off of a table onto your back without telling you. Like, if you're going to jump on my back, just tell me. Let me know. That Those are the kinds of things that I like to know. So when you go through life, he's not saying if, but when. Why am I making a point of that? That we like to have these contingency plans in life for if things go wrong. When in reality, we need to have a plan for when things go wrong. And I know that doesn't sound it's like super exciting, but that counselor that I told you about yesterday, when I talked with her about this very topic, one of the things that she talked about is the importance of even as a family or even in your own life, if no matter what stage you're in, playing through in your mind that if this were to go wrong, how do I respond? And I said, well, yes, I get that. But still, she's like, oh, I know. You can prep all you want, but until you actually get there, you don't know fully how you're going to respond. And so times are going to be difficult. We are going to get thrown certain things, but the reality, we, ha- we have to have this understanding that difficult trials, that they are coming. It's not a matter of, of if, it's a matter 
of wind. But notice in this text, he, he also, I'm going to go back one, that he uses this word trials. And in the Greek, it, it includes temptations. But that makes it difficult to define them because there's a big difference between temptation and trial. They're, they're similar because there's something difficult we have to walk through. But the approach is different. What I mean by that, and why we're even talking about this, if we don't notice and identify when we go through something that this is a trial and this is a temptation, we will start to put energy in the wrong places and approach it in the wrong way. And, and so what I mean by that is this, that when you face a trial, not a temptation, but often the key is not resistance, but acceptance. That, that you didn't ask for the trial, but you can't avoid the trial. So the posture of a person dealing with a temptation is to resist, but when you go through a, temp, a trial, excuse me, the posture is to say, hey, I don't want this, but I've got to accept that this is the situation right now. And, and, and if we don't understand the difference between the two of those, we're going to put the wrong energy towards the wrong place. And instead of resisting things, we accept things. Instead of accepting things, we resist things. And, and it's important to understand the difference between the two of those. And so here's what he says that it, it can do. He says, count it all joy. For you engineers out there, this is a math term that's used in the Greek to say that it can add something to your life, the trial it can. And I find that interesting because when we talk about joy today, whether that's on the news, even some of the, I guess you could say more of the health and wealth type preaching, it approaches joy from the standpoint of just discover your joy. Well, joy is not something we just always discover. It's something that you develop. And, and in this text, he's saying that if, if you look at your trial as this can add something to my life, this is going to grow me in a way that I don't, you know, like me, I, I don't want to have to go through difficult things to get patience. I just want God to give me the patience, right? I think we're all in, in that same boat. But at the same time, he's like, when you go through this, I'm not going to waste that hurt. I'm, I'm going to grow something in you. He says, so count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials of different kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. Very similar to the word you read about in Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews 12, where the Hebrew writer, he says, you know, that the testing, you know, talks about the endurance that, I've, uh, that for that, that group of Christians, similar to the ones here in James, they were going through very severe persecutions. And he there talks about that endurance that you have by fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author, that perfecter of faith. Well, that word steadfastness it is translated in a lot of different ways, but one of my favorite definitions is this, staying power. I, I love that. To patiently endure, that when things go wrong, that, that you, you, you're still hanging in there. I, I like that because I, I read this tweet a few weeks ago that we are all going to get bent in life, but that doesn't mean we're going to have to be broken. And, and I thought that was a good way to describe it. And I thought about it like this. Whenever a potter puts a piece of clay on a wheel, uh, he or she will mold that and, and make it into what they want it to be. And then they'll put it on this plate and, and then put that plate in the oven to harden this piece of clay to let it turn into whatever they designed it to be. 
And a potter, what, what they'll do to decide whether or not this piece of clay is ready, they'll thump it. And when they thump it, if it thuds, it's not ready. But if you thump it and it sings, it's ready. And, and, and I love that because we all get thudded in life. <laughs> Some of you, uh, you probably had it last semester or you're going to have it this week. You, a parent-teacher meeting, thud, right? That you have a, a grumpy boss that makes life miserable. You have a person in a cubicle beside you that makes life miserable, thud. That things are already going difficult financially and then the transmission goes out, thud. And, and the reason why I mention that is when we get these thumps in life over and over again, whatever comes out of us during the middle of that trial is often an indicator of our faith, but where our heart is. That, that nothing reveals the faith of a person more than those thumps. And I want you to think about this. When you go through those thumps, because James just said it, it's not a matter of if, when, do you thud, do you sink? And, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later. That's part of the power of worship. That when we worship and we praise God. Problem to the problem solver, didn't he? Did, did the problems go away? No. But your focus did. That's the value of, of what praise can do. In fact, I found this quote too. I thought it was good. A faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. I, I love that because a lot of God's preparation and growth in life comes packaged in the form of pain. And so because of that, it, it's how we see life matters, that we don't see life through the perspective of pain. That's not what I'm saying but you see your pain through the perspective of purpose. What, what can this pain and this difficulty produce in me to an end that's going to bless me, but as James is talking about here, is also going to bless other people? Because here's what it goes on to do. It, it grows you. He says, so let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, Paul Tripp said it like this, God will take you where you wouldn't go to produce in you what you couldn't accomplish. When you go throughout Scripture, one of the things that you'll notice is, yes, God wants us to arrive at these certain places of growth. And when I say arrive, I'm not saying that we've all, no one's arrived. I don't care if you're 30 or 90. We're all growing. And the moment that we um, stop growing is, is the moment that we're settling, right? That you can grow old, but that doesn't mean you're growing up, you know? And that, that there's a constant growing process. But one of the things that I know about God is, he celebrates the path of growing in maturity just as much as he does the destination of maturity. That he loves to see his children grow. I don't know if y'all had one of these, but in our house, uh, we have in a doorway the heights of our kids. And that it's kind of neat to see how they've grown over the years. We, we put a little pencil mark and we write where they're at. And... Um, we had a, a friend of ours that their kid um, was not growing. And one of the things that he told me that they were dealing with was um, a part of it for him was a diet issue. And so what happened for them is they 
we're told by the doctor, all right, because your child is dealing with these certain things in their body, they're spending so much time fighting things that their body is not able to grow. And, and so they had this failure to grow um, diagnosis. And so the parents are, were like, all right, well, what do we do? And he said, well, you're, I would change this and this, and, and then we're gonna also give him this, and, and that should fix everything. And then they went to their son, right, and said, hey, I was just gonna let you know, the doctor said there's nothing we can do about it, right? No, the doctor gave them what they need to do, so what did they do? They changed things. They saw that their, their child needed something to grow, and so they changed the, the, their perspective on it, but also they changed what they were going to do. And that's what I'm saying, that the value of maturing, growing in our faith is even greater than the absence of the trial. Yes, none of us invite trials, none of us want trials, but it's in the middle of that trial that God can grow something if we just let him. But here's the other thing I know about trials, is they do, in fact, break our pride, don't they? Um, not, I want to try to get through this real quickly, but going into my senior year in high school, I had a goal for myself that there was a certain amount of points that I wanted to get to in basketball, and there was a certain amount of rebounds that I wanted to get to. And I got my dad to get me uh, some shooting lessons with a, a guy in town. I spent my whole summer at the gym. That's all I did was play basketball. And I was so focused on me and me playing basketball. And the very first game, our gym on one of the sides had a, it was like five feet from the out of bounds line was a wall. And so I go to save the ball and I put my hand up to stop myself and my hand hits and this bone right here that's on top of your hand, it goes boop and immediately pops out. I missed my entire senior year except for the last two games of the tournament. And so I didn't reach my goals. I didn't reach what I wanted to do, but I will tell you what that did for me. And I didn't realize it then and God's still working on my pride now, and we could probably all say the same thing about ourselves, right? But that trial was not something I wanted. It's not something I invited, but it did attack something that I was struggling with, and that was a pride issue. But what's interesting about James here is that he's saying that when you're going through a difficult time, if you're struggling how to see it, in verse five, what does he talk about? The, the answer to that is to what? To pray. We don't oftentimes make this connection, but there is a direct connection between a lack of prayer and the presence of pride. Now you might say, no, that's not true for me because the reason why I don't pray is I just don't have time. I'm too busy doing all these things. And it's, it's not because I, I, I'm, I'm prideful. No, because if you really understood that you needed God's wisdom and you needed God's help, guess what you would do? Oh, you would pray. And so that's why to me that a lack of prayer is like that check engine light in your heart that says, hey, I've got this and I can handle it on my own. But the other thing that trials do is they help us to comfort other people. That God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in uh, affliction. One of the things that Kyle said um, in the car yesterday uh, that I thought was a really good point, you know, I think it was Friday night we had talked about how hurt people do what? they'll hurt people, that when you're hurt, it's easy to hurt, but he made the point to say that sometimes hurt people are also the best to minister to other hurt people. I think about this text in Luke 22 when Jesus is talking to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked me to sift you out like wheat. He's asked me to kick you to the curb. You know what I did for you? I prayed that your faith would not fail. 
And notice in the text, he doesn't say, I pray that you wouldn't fail. He just says, I pray that your faith won't fail. We are all going to fail, but that does not mean that our faith has to fail. And that's what he lets him out. And so he goes on to say, I pray that your faith won't fail so that you can go and strengthen your brothers. Do you see that in your prayers when you ask God, I don't want my faith to fail in the middle of this. It's, it's not just so you can keep the blessings for yourselves. It's to bless other people so you can go out and strengthen your brothers. So you can strengthen your sisters. But here's the last thing we're going to end with is that trials draw us closer to God. This past week, uh, we had a 40-year-old guy at Madison that passed away. He had three kids, a sophomore in college, and partly why this hit home to me is that his two younger kids were the exact same age as my two oldest kids. And when you see a, a man that's in the same stage of life as you die of cancer at that age, it, it, it really hits in a different way. And when we were at the ho their house and talking with his wife, Ashley, one of the things that she shared with us, she said, I had to tell you this, that um, their son asked in the car the other day to their dad when they were on the way back from another hospital appointment and said, hey dad, and this is a seven-year-old by the way, if you could take away your cancer, would you do it? And Greg, he, he said, you know, that's a hard thing to swallow and to think about, buddy, because I want as much time with you as I possibly can, but I also ha have to tell you, buddy, that your daddy has grown more since he's had this cancer than he's ever grown in his entire life. And when I hear that, I'm like, whoa. Like, it's, it's one thing to hear that, but it's a whole other thing to live that. For Greg, um, he let that trial grow him and mature him. Some of you might remember this, not this past, yeah, I guess it was this past Monday Night Football, uh, that DeMar Hamlin, in the middle of a, a football game, had a heart attack, fell backwards. And what an incredible trial and difficult thing. But do you all remember what happened on that field? What did people start doing? Praying. Y'all remember Dan, this guy on ESPN? In the middle of the news, what did he start doing? Praying. And I, I shared that video, and it's a powerful video, and I almost typed out, you know, we, we need more of this. And I, I do agree with that. We do need more of this. But I'll tell you where we need more of this is in the church. A lot of times we talk about, well, we need more of this in our, you know, country. No, I'm, we need more of this in the church. Like, how often do we say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll pray for you, brother. Well, why don't you just pray for him right then and there? Pray for them now. Part of it, because if you're like me, sometimes I'll say I'm praying for you, then I'll forget. But also, the Bible makes a very powerful mention about when several people get together and they pray. That those trials that we go through, they can grow us closer to God. You know, we've looked at faith and trials, and we don't have, we've got to end now, but if you look at everything that we've talked about, what does faith and trials look like? Well, it looks like prayer bringing God to the very center of that and seeing the circumstance through him, not the other way around, understanding his providence. The, the word providence is difficult to define, but the best way I think of it is it's in the definition that God is going to provide. 
that his promises are true and, and, and to praise him. And your praise may start out very empty. It may start out very difficult because you're not feeling it. But I'm telling you in the middle of that praise that God will start to shift your focus from, from the problem itself to the one that can solve it. And then patience and perseverance that he talked about in that passage that you are going to go through difficulties. You are going to get thumped. But are you going to sing or are you going to thud? Thank you all.